right wing political violence. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There is every indication that the threats from militias and white supremacist groups is, are rising. And there are growing fears of a mass casualty attack perhaps on the horizon. Here to talk about this and where we stand with our democracy in the battle against white supremacist groups is an expert, a nationally known expert on authoritarian movements, hate violence and democracy, Eric Ward. He is the senior advisor for the Western State Center, which grow, which which tracks anti-Semitism and white supremacism. Eric, thanks for joining us. Um, there are a couple of threat assessments the Biden administration conducted right after he took office about where things stand. What did the Biden administration find? The Biden administration found uh, some critical points in a study that they commissioned <coughs> to investigate the threat of extremist violence. The, the most profound piece that, that they found was that they anticipated that there would be increased violence post January 6th, uh, particularly in terms of standalone attacks and paramilitary organizations such as Three Percenters uh, and others. And I believe uh, that investigation has turned out to be true. As, as we look at post Buffalo, Highland Park, news breaking uh, uh, in, in Texas uh, uh, and elsewhere about. Jewish centers and, and offices that had to close down uh, over several days. Uh, we are seeing an uptick in, in threats and, and actual violence and uh, uh, mass shootings have been part of that. Uh, but yesterday we learned that a congresswoman in Washington state uh, was the victim of an individual who drove around her home uh, brandishing a weapon that turned out to be a pellet gun. Uh, shouting racial slurs, uh, anti-Indian anti slurs. That is a federal congresswoman in, in Seattle, Washington. The uptick in violence is, is very real. And the Biden administration was right to investigate it and to warn the American public of this threat. And we saw, as you've been warning for years, um, we saw just how real this threat really, really is back on January the 6th. What stands out? I mean, with all the information that has come out now from the congressional hearings, what jumps out to you about the connection between January 6th and where militia movements stand in the United States? So we know a few things, thanks to the hard work of journalists, uh, but now also the January 6th uh, investigation. I think it's worth taking a step back to, to understand what we now know. So we know, according to American journalists through several studies, that the Trump administration was utilizing uh, extremist organizations and connection to extremist organizations through its advisor to plot and plan for January 6th. And it appears that that relationship was open coordination uh, between individuals like Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, and others, and that this coordination was based off the premise of telling individuals that the election had been stolen. But now understanding from Congress and the January 6th committee that the Trump administration, including Donald Trump, including his closest advisors, understood as early as November that there were no legal arguments that sustained or upheld their argument that the elections were stolen, that after 16 uh, uh, cases through the court system that had all, all been thrown out, that this was a legal election. However, the Trump administration and his closest advisors chose another path to use lies to rally their troops in order to create an environment of violence 
uh, on January 6th. And that's exactly what happened. But the second piece is key, that the activities that we saw on January 6th had been practiced upon communities, including Portland, Oregon, uh, for months leading up to January 6th. At the end of the day, Donald Trump was approached by advisors who suggested that he ignore the Constitution of the United States and that he move into an authoritarian space by ignoring the constitutional right and results of an election and by threatening violence. And he chose to not defend the United States, but to enter into collaboration with these individuals who sought an American coup. It has been riveting to see the nexus between Donald Trump, his administration, and these right-wing groups. Uh, the January 6th hearings produced testimony from an oath keeper, uh, one of the leaders who said, we were misled uh, that if I knew now what Trump's own advisors knew about the validity of the election, things would have been different. How much does uh, a prominent oath keepers testifying on national television that yes, the election was valid, Donald Trump misled us, how much does that tamp down the right-wing militia groups that would support Donald Trump? Well, what we now know is that this is a national spokesperson. This is a former national spokesperson for the Oath Keepers. This is an individual who was part of the inter-leadership, inner leadership of the organization, of this paramilitary organization. We now know that, that he has told Congress that he felt that they were manipulated, that they were fed a lie that forced them and encouraged them uh, to engage in in mobilization. I think it's quite significant. At at the end of the day, individuals are still responsible for their actions. There is no reason that these individuals should have been bringing weapons and explosives into the nation's capital. There is no reason they should have been threatening the lives of elected officials. They still must be held accountable for that. But we understand now that there was a co-conspirator and that that co-conspirator did not care about the lives of the individuals that they were putting in harm's way. Over 160 law enforcement officers injured, people murdered on that day, elected officials terrorized. And it wasn't just the mobs in the street. It was those circling the Trump administration who lit the fire that day on January 6th and have now walked away while these individuals on the ground are facing accountability. Yeah, and even if you take Donald Trump out of the equation, a number of experts have pointed out that the sort of right-wing militias, white supremacist groups have been bubbling up anyway. Why is that? What is it that causes fascist sort of movements to, to grow and thrive in a society? The belief that they can ignore the rules of law and order, the, the idea that they don't have to practice basic values like kindness. Look, at the end of the day, Uh, This is not a federal problem. This will not be solved by the federal government. This will be solved by local communities coming together with local government, business, religious leaders, and others in civil society and saying enough is enough. If we want to defend the United States of America, we have to first start by strengthening our local communities and our ties to one another. This is where we are being exploited. This is where we're being terrorized at the local level. And that's where the fight turns after this commission is over. I've seen some some experts say that you know because of the economic transformation we're going through, so many communities are being hollowed out so quickly. Something like half of all the jobs that exist today won't exist in 20 years because of technology. That this is happening, this upheaval is happening so quickly that it is causing some people to be so incredibly fearful and they gravitate towards a white supremacist nationalist group. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. Uh, The federal government has to understand 
right? That there is a, a, an extremist war being waged on American democracy. And in all places where war is being waged, it's not simply the criminal acts, right? The militarized acts of violence. There are the issues that they exploit in communities. And what they're exploiting is inequality, the inability to, to house people, to provide jobs, to provide better opportunities uh, for life. And if we're about to make the case for an American democracy, one that's grounded in inclusion, local communities need the support of the federal government to step up, stop strangling American communities through inequality, particularly economic inequality. People shouldn't have to work three jobs in order to feed their families. I don't care if they're black, white, immigrant, or an American citizen. All of us have the right to live, love, worship, and work. And until we solve that problem, extremists like the Oath Keepers will always be waiting in the wings for a snake salesman like Donald Trump to come along and ignite them. This is time for us to declare a war on behalf of American democracy. And that means meeting the needs of all of our citizens and residents. And some of those needs though will take a, something of a long-term battle, whether it's education or economic insecurity or transformation. Are there things that communities, local communities and states can do in the short term to try to snuff out or tamp down where militias are going right now? I think there's three things we can do. So, so the first that we can do, right, is to find ways of uniting our communities around issues of common concern, right? We still have communities that can't feed their children, that can't find work. Let's get back to some of the basics. The second, right, is to draw a clear moral barrier against bigotry at the local level. We need elected officials of all political persuasion to draw that moral barrier. There should be no room for political violence and bigotry in our community. But the third is don't believe the hype. Don't believe the rhetoric from extremists that we cannot make a difference. We can absolutely make a difference. This is a world that created a COVID vaccine in less than 12 months. That is what humanity can do when we put our minds and our hearts to it. So can we here in the United States, if we want a real democracy that our children can be proud of, if we want a real democracy that meets the needs of the American people, let's believe that it's possible. Let's stop believing the hype that American democracy isn't dying. It isn't dying, it's under attack. Are you optimistic? And in the few seconds we have left, um, I suppose a yes or a no and an explanation why. Yeah. You know, I am an optimist. I think we have hard days and years ahead in the United States of America. But at the end of the day, we will come out on the right side. The majority of Americans want to move forward together. And that's our role. Tough days ahead, but believe that we will be the country that we've said that we've always wanted to be. One that's united, one that believes in the future, not one that's grounded in a bloody past of, of domination and intimidation. There are better days ahead for America. Let's not let them exhaust them. Amen. Eric Ward, he's a senior advisor for the Western State Center. He's an expert on authoritarian movements, hate violence and democracy. Eric, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Millennial power in 2022. Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. I'm David Schuster. There are some fascinating 2022 primary races and general election battles that are shaping up. And one of them 
is in Florida's 15th congressional district. It's a newly sort of carved district based on redistricting. And we're so pleased to be joined by one of the leading candidates in the primary race on the Democratic side, Eddie Geller. He is a progressive, he is a millennial. Um, he's also raised more money than any other Democrat in the primary. Is that correct, Eddie? How'd you do it? That's correct. A lot of hard work. We've been in this race since last year. I, I jumped in to hold the Republican accountable after embracing the big lie and voting to overturn the election. So just been putting in the work and people have been excited about our message. Now that incumbent Republican Scott Franklin, because of redistricting, he gets a little safer district. So he's not running. This is essentially an open race. The primary is August 23rd. What have you seen so far? What has surprised you about the race so far? Well, I we got a big surprise with redistricting. I, as I mentioned, jumped in this race with Scott Franklin. We knew it was gonna be a tough road, but then DeSantis did his worst with redistricting, but kind of left this district open, this 15th district. So it was a surprise to see it go from you know this more red district to now it's this purple, practically a toss up district. So it becomes more of an opportunity, caught some folks off guard. And, and so we've been just, like I said, been here for you know about 10 or 11 months now. And what I've been seeing on the ground is people are excited for a different kind of candidate. I think we are getting a little tired of the candidate that looks like they're grown in a laboratory in Washington DC. So bringing something different, some creativity and people are excited to see you know, a millennial candidate who's been doing the work talking about the issues. And also, I used to be a comedian too, so that's always <laughs> a fun thing to talk about. Yeah, look, you got a great, um, great role model in, the, in Ukraine. Hopefully, we don't have exactly. to go that way in the United States. Uh, so you're you're not just a millennial though. You're a graduate of the University of Florida. You worked at the DNC. You worked on MoveOn.org, so you've got some experience in politics. Right. Why now, at this stage in your career, why now run for Congress? Well, I think democracy is hanging on by a threat. I mean, I went from being the sort of activist to being a candidate because. I think like a lot of folks and probably a lot of your viewers feel like, what can I do, what can I do? And I think after January 6th and seeing Scott Franklin vote to overturn the election after a coup on our Capitol, the thought to myself is, can I run? And the answer was yes, not only can I run, I have to run. So that's what made me decide to go from being the activist to being the candidate. You've got some other Democrats who are running named Gavin Brown, Alan Cohen, Cesar Ramirez. What makes you different in terms of policies? Well, I I think I'm the progressive in the race. We got recently got an endorsement from the Central Florida Progressive Democrats of America. Very proud of that. And I think kind of to what I was talking about earlier, the establishment came in with a candidate 24 hours before the filing deadline. He was endorsed by uh, immediately endorsed by Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Lois Frankel, and you know that is an establishment side that has been doing their establishment thing for too long. So I think it's really coming in with, like I said, a fresh perspective, a progressive perspective, and doing something creative. I talked about. I used to be a comedian. I launched my campaign with a sitcom jingle parody uh, because that's that's who I am. I think we. We've got to find creative ways to talk to people. It can't just be the same old message and the same old candidate. So I think that really sets me apart. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you're sort of setting me up here. You want to do a few lines from that journey? <laughs> uh, well, I, I actually, I will admit, I did not sing the jingle myself. <laughs> we, we got someone with a much better voice, but I did, I did write the lyrics and help write the music. But people can go to eddiegeller.com. The jingle is right there on the website, and they can also chip in and make a contribution, help us win this race. 
Addie, one of your key issues is, is healthcare for all. How do you take a purple district and convince people uh, that not only is Medicare for all the right thing, and polls show that you know 80% of the people support it, but that it's actually doable politically? Well, I think it's it's not an overnight thing. And I think you gotta be honest with people that we're not gonna do it you know, tomorrow. But no one is happy with how much they have to pay for healthcare. No one is happy that they have to deny themselves or stop themselves from going to the doctor because they're, they're worried how much it's gonna cost. So I think when you're honest about this is where we need to go and these are the steps we need to take to get there, people are more open to it. I mean, the right wing and the you know a lot of the establishment media you know wants to tell us that it's too big or too far away and really demagogues uh, Medicare for all and universal health care and I think you just got to be honest and push back against a lot of the lies uh, that are out there against Medicare for all. If you won, would it be very difficult pushing back against Nancy Pelosi? Let's suppose she remained the House Speaker and Democrats are able to somehow hold control of the House. Nancy Pelosi remains the House Speaker. There are a lot of progressives who are not very happy with her, that she's too establishment, that she essentially has muted some of the progressive impulses that the party now has. Well, I think you've got to continue to build progressive power. I don't think, I don't want to go in there, even though I come in as a progressive, I also want to get things done. I don't just want to be a thorn in people's side. I want to make my case and I want to join with other progressives and continue to build and build that coalition until it's undeniable. And that just takes time. You got to get more progressives in office and you got to build that voting block. And it's already, it's gotten a lot bigger in the last decade. And I just want to continue to get bigger. So when, you know, we're, Talking to Pelosi, we're talking to whomever. We're saying these are all the you know candidates we have. These are the people we represent, and they want universal health care. They want bold action on climate, and you're going to have to take us seriously. Uh, some conservatives want us to take them seriously in terms of uh, not doing anything on climate change, and we've seen a couple of conservatives say, "Look, no matter what the United States does on climate change, China and India they are the bigger problems. They're not doing anything. So why should we tax our economy so severely?" when they're not going to. What's the answer to that? Well, I think, you know, to me being proud to be an American, which I am, is that we can take the lead on these things and we can take bold action and we should be the leaders and we shouldn't point at other countries because they're not doing enough. We have to use our power and our strength to be leaders on the climate crisis. And you want to talk about the economy? I mean, it's going to cost us trillions and trillions of dollars to continue to not act. There are huge opportunities to invest in clean energy and really get this climate on track. And that's where we're gonna grow the economy. So it's, I think, a, a false narrative that this is gonna cost too much. It's really, it's about investment, it's about the future. Some small business owners say that if you uh, if you increase wages, you increase the minimum wage, that's gonna cost the businesses, it's gonna cost people jobs. Again, it's another sort of flashpoint issue in a purple district, how do you deal with it? Well, I think you do have to listen to business owners and you have to be thoughtful about that. But at the end of the day, people got to make a living wage. I mean, you should not be working 40 hours a week and not be able to pay your rent or get gas or pay for food. I mean, these are baseline human rights. So we want small businesses to be successful, absolutely. But to open a business and run a successful business is about treating your employees equitably equitably and paying them fairly and so i think you got to you know talk on those terms and and really listen to business owners but at the end of the day you hold firm on your your values that that workers deserve this dignity they deserve to be able to pay their rent and put food on the table 
Eddie, you don't talk like somebody who doesn't have much life experience, like a typical sort of millennial. And yet, um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who have not heard you who think, oh my God, why should I vote for millennial, somebody who doesn't have the kind of life experience that maybe I have or maybe that our district or country needs. Uh, how, do you, how do you get there with them? Well, I think again, I, I go back to this thing about listening. I mean, I've mentioned being a comedian, part of being an improv comedian actually is when you're on stage, you have to be really present and you have to listen to everything your partner is saying and other people on stage is saying. So I take that skill to be a really active and thoughtful listener. And so I think when you're working with working with folks or talking to folks who say you don't have the life experience or or you don't have this, you know, really listen to what those critiques are. Break it down and also say, we're the ones who are gonna be inheriting this country in the generations to come. And we have a stake in this, millennials and Gen Z, that older folks you know, don't have as much. And, uh, and so I think you gotta make the case that our perspective is really not represented in Congress. I mean, we talk about a gerontocracy. I mean, the average age, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's, it's certainly a, a surprisingly uh, large number. Right, and it's and it's your generation, millennials, Gen Xers, who are essentially going to have the burden of a lot of the problems that <laughs> my generation and others have left you. Uh, that's pretty serious stuff. I wonder, though. Yeah. I mean, given your comedic background, is there room for for zingers and one-liners and, and jokes in a campaign, or are we are we too serious for that now? Oh no, I think you know the issues are serious, but you can't always take yourself so seriously. I mean. Politics wants to drain the life out of you and drain the joy out of you. But I think part of how you win and part of how you build a coalition, be successful, is you make it uh, you make it inviting and you bring some joy into the work. Because if there's not that, that's when people turn away. And it's always been so important to me from my beginning days at Move On to working with Robert Reich. How do we communicate in ways that are gonna get to people? And a lot of times that's having a bit of sense of humor, having not taking yourself too seriously, but being serious about the work. Eddie, I think there are gonna be some people who look at this and say, hey, is he a guitar player? Is he a musician? <laughs> what about the guitars and can we expect you to play them on the campaign trail? Well, uh, I'm, maybe at some point I might bust out a guitar. I like to think I'm a, uh, a, a, a decent novice at guitar, so don't expect any any roaring solos, but uh, I'm not going to melt anyone's face. But I'm, I might be able to strum some strum some chords. Well, speaking of melting, the primary is August the 23rd. <laughs> that is the dead of summer for Florida. It can be awfully, awfully hot down there. Uh, how do you get? I mean, what, how do you convince people in the middle of the summertime when the headwinds are going against Democrats to put aside your fears to say, okay, let's go ahead and get out there and vote and let's believe in progressive causes. Well, I think you gotta excite people. You know, it's about progressive issues and talking about fighting about healthcare for all and bold issues on climate and codifying Roe into law. I think you start there with at people's core emotional values and you get them excited to do the work. And then, yes, you mentioned it's gonna be hot out and you try not to schedule door knocking in the worst <laughs> part of the afternoon. Um, but really when people are excited to do the work, they will show up and we we want more people to show up. They can go to eddiegeller.com, help contribute, help us support this campaign and we're gonna win this thing. Eddie Geller, he's raised more money than any other Democrat in this race. He's the progressive candidate in Democrats in the in the Democratic's 15th congressional district in Florida. Eddie, good luck to you. And, and thanks oh, for coming thank on the you. show. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And that'll do it for this conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.